doesn't mean we don't have a way have a, a way of keeping time, keeping track of the time. How many of you have a watch on? See, most people have. Some people have expressed uh, some disappointment about taking the clock down. Now, we didn't really intend to leave it down on a permanent basis, but I got to looking around. I very rarely ever see anybody without a watch, and I would say that you probably keep track of the time right during service. How many of you do that? Now, come on now. <laughs> You're afraid to raise your hand. <laughs> well, see, I have my watch laying here because I'm keeping track of the time. Uh, Sunday morning, we, we do try to let you go about a quarter to twelve. All depends on who's preaching. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes I go overtime. But we run buses, and it is imperative that we dismiss at a certain time because we have people right here in our congregation who ride buses. I don't know how many people came on the bus this morning. Some of you did not come. You came in on the bus. You came in cars, but your children ride the buses. And I do appreciate all the parents who attend our Sunday morning service who have children that ride the buses. We were running into a little situation with our bus ministry. It cost a lot of money. Uh, we have not been able to maintain the buses the way we'd like, but we're trying by the help of the Lord to put some New emphasis on the bus ministry. Recently in the Sunday morning service, we had uh, 70-something visitors. And I think uh, about 90% of those came as a result of bus ministry. I really appreciate that. Turn to Mark, the 8th chapter. Mark the 8th chapter, verse 36 and verse 37. And I want to preach to you this morning on the subject, the value of your soul. The value of your soul. Mark 8, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? And lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give. In exchange for his soul. And notice. This is in the form of a question. That the Lord posed. What he was talking about. The true sense. And value. Of the soul. And of eternal life. Now you may be seated. The Word of God establishes what man is all about. That is, what constitutes man, what he is constructed of. And then, of course, also, the Word of God places extreme importance on taking care of yourself. Now, when we say taking care of yourself... Most of us automatically think of the body and the needs of the body. Now, Paul instructs Timothy in his letter to Timothy. He said, bodily exercise profiteth little. Now, 
when he says profiteth little, the context of the scripture is that bodily exercise profiteth for a little while. Now, see, when some people would look at the scripture, they would say, well, you know, to keep your body in good physical condition doesn't mean much because the Bible says bodily exercise profits little. Now, what he was saying, it profited for a little while. Now, that simply means then that it is important for a person to, to stay in fairly good physical condition. However, he is saying this, that the thing that most people neglect is the eternal soul of a man. And the soul of a man lives forever and forever and forever. Now, man is made up of flesh. He is made up then of an inner being which is spirit and soul. Now, if you will turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, and we will read verse 23. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, has this to say, verse 23 of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. Now the word holy means the whole person, the whole man. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he uses the word sanctify. Now sanctify means to set apart or to cleanse for a particular purpose or reason. Now what he is saying is that our bodies should be sanctified, our soul should be sanctified, and our spirit should be sanctified. For this reason, we believe that it is sinful for a person to do harm to his body. Taking drugs, drinking alcoholic beverages and such is in violation of the context and writings of all scripture. The Bible says, no, you're not, that your body... Your body is the temple of God. If any man destroy or defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For God loveth a holy temple, which temple ye are. So it is important that a person sanctify his body. But then he doesn't stop there. He also talks about the soul and the spirit. Now, in my search of the scripture, the spirit is the element of the inner man that constitutes life. However, 
it is from the Spirit that we also have our attitudes and our basic desires. The soul of man seems to be the seat of our emotions. In Mark the 14th chapter verse 34, when Jesus goes to the cross, or when he is in the garden, and he contemplates the cross, he said, Now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful. And what he is doing, he is experiencing emotional pain that touches him deep down inside. Now all of you have been associated at some moment or time in your life with what we call heartbreak. Maybe you are in love with a young lady or in love with a young man and uh, you get a Dear John letter, so to speak, and uh, you know that your relationship with the individual has terminated. And uh, you didn't want this to happen. But nevertheless, it happened anyway. Against your wishes and against your desires, it has happened. There is such a thing as feeling pain inside. It's almost like a physical pain. It touches you inside. It tears you up. You can actually feel it. There are some people that have physical problems as a result of things that hinder or hurt in their soul. Uh, There have been people who have gone and, and literally vomited as a result of heartbreak and pain and disappointment. Heaving. They can't get over the situation. And this is what Jesus was saying. Now he associated this with the soul. Now what I'd like to do is just take you all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, the second chapter. And I'd like to to show you the creative steps of man. In Genesis, the second chapter, verse 7, the Bible tells us that God made man. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Can you believe that man was originally made out of dirt, out of soil, out of dust? And this is the reason why that you will quite often hear ministers make this statement. When they are uh, about to put someone in the ground, they say, From dust thou came, and to dust thou shalt return. We are made from the dust of the earth. And when our bodies are planted back in the ground, God's original intent was that that body return back to the dust from whence it came. Now, the Apostle Paul makes a statement in his letter to the Romans, and this is the way he puts it. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. Now he goes on to say in verse 2 of Romans 12, Be not conformed to this world, but be it transformed. 
Now, when he says conform to this world, he was speaking of a spiritual uh, time that would come upon a man in which he would return back to the world that he came out of. Now, he's talking about the cosmos or the kingdom in which the devil has set up his particular reign. Every saved person came out of the cosmos or the system of the world. Now, he said, but be it transformed. In other words, don't go back where you came, but he said, be it transformed. How? By the renewing of your minds. In other words, keep your mind constantly on the Lord so that a constant development and change will be prevalent in your life so that you're going further and further and further away from the kingdom that you came out of. Why? Because light hath no fellowship with darkness. A man cannot hold hands with God and mammon. Can you serve two masters? Can out of the same fountain flow both bitter and sweet water at the same time? He said, absolutely not. And so he says that we should constantly be transformed. But he does use this word, be not conformed to this world. Now, just as a man had come away from, stepped out of, been sanctified from the world or the cosmos or the system of the devil, it is also true that our bodies were taken out of the ground. And when we die, we are conformed back to that original source. And conform means to go back to the original shape, the original source in which you came from. And so man came from the dust of the earth, and it was God's plan that man be planted back into the ground so that he conforms or goes back to the shape of the earth. Now, God made man from the dust of the earth, and here he is, a lifeless being. Because you see, in the soil, in the ground, in this particular earthly form, there was no life. So man was lifeless. God first made him a body. Now notice what happened. And God then did what? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became what? A living soul. He was different now. He had a soul, an inner being. Now you will find in the scripture that quite often it refers to the soul of beasts and of animals. Now I am do not adhere to the doctrine that animals live eternally. The Bible speaks of this, and the context of the Scripture bears witness that all life does come from God. However, man was made in the image and in the likeness of God. When the Spirit uh, of man departs from the body in death, it goes back to God. However, uh, that is speaking of human life that returns back to God. But the scripture tells us that man became a living soul. That simply means that, that just as you would plant plants in a bed someplace around your household, 
And you would find that they reproduce by shooting roots underground. And a new uh, creature springs up as a result of the original source. That in death, it is the cutting off of the link that connects man with God. But the plant is able to live on because it was given life and because that its original source came from its parent, then it lives just as its parent also lives. And the reason why that man does not return back to the dust of the earth as a dog or a cat and life goes back to God and he ceases to be is the fact that he was created in the image and the likeness of God. And that simply means that man is different from all of the other creatures that walked upon the face of the earth. He has the power to reason. He's given his own will. So inside of man is a living soul that lives forever and forever and forever. In other words, eternal life has been placed into him because he was made in the likeness and the image of an eternal God. Deuteronomy, the 33rd chapter, verse 27, the Bible says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Now you will find throughout the Scripture, and I only pick one Scripture to bear witness to the validity of the teaching of the Word of God. But throughout the Scripture, when God is referred to, He is constantly referred to as the everlasting God. He is constantly referred to as the eternal God. In Isaiah, the, the ninth chapter, the verse 6, when Jesus was prophesied uh, concerning His coming and, and His Messiahship, the scripture says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, the Everlasting Father. Now you notice what the scripture is speaking of him as the Everlasting, the Everlasting, the Everlasting. And God is Everlasting, He is Eternal. So man being made in the image and in the likeness of God... That simply means that he, being like unto his parent, God, he became a direct offspring of God himself. Now, Paul speaks of this when he goes to Mars Hill, Hill rather, in uh, the uh, book of Acts. When Par Paul goes to Mars Hill, he begins to talk about... Uh, uh, the value of men. And this is what he says. He says, even your poets have declared that ye are the offspring of God. Now the reason why that Paul makes reference to this on Mars Hill is because that uh, the prophets, uh, the psalmist had this to say. He said, know ye not that we are gods? G-O-D-S, small gods? That simply means that we are not the everlasting God. We are not all-powerful. We are not omnipotent. We can't be everywhere. Why? Because there is much more to us than just spirit and soul. We are confined, each one of us, individually to a body. 
But we were made in the image and in the likeness of God. Now, what happens then when a man dies? When a man dies, the Bible tells us that his spirit goes back to God, the giver of all life. The scripture then tells us that the body is placed in the ground. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after death comes the judgment. Now, the Bible says, The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. There is not one person who has ever walked upon the face of this earth who has not committed sin outside of Jesus Christ. He was the only exception. But all of us have committed sin, and that simply means that we are destined to die. We will go back to the earth, to the dirt, to the soil in which we came from. Now, if the Spirit goes back to God, the giver of life, and if indeed the body goes back to the ground, and it remains in the ground, and it does remain in the ground for a season, then what about the third element of man? Now, Jesus said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? He speaks of the seat of emotion, the, the being of the individual. Now, where does it go? And this is something that I want to deal with this morning in this Bible lesson. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke, the 16th chapter, Jesus gives a story concerning the soul of a man and where it goes after man dies. In verse 19 of Luke 16, <clears throat> the Bible gives us a story of two individuals. One was a righteous man and one was a wicked man or an evil man. And this is the issue that we are confronted with in our present day. And the reason why I say issue, everybody is saying this, where did I come from? Who am I and where am I going? This seems to be the biggest quest of life today. Where did I come from? Who am I and where am I going? I dare say that there are very few squirrels and rabbits and cats that wonder about this. But you see, because man has intelligence, he has ability to reason, he is the only creature that God has made that has ability to reason. He has given a separate will and an ability to reason. And so he reasons these things out. Where did I come from? Who am I? And where am I going? But do you know that the Bible definitely tells us the answer to all of these particular questions? Where did I come from? The Bible says we came from God Himself. Who am I? I am a direct offspring of God. And where am I going? Because I have within me an eternal soul that cannot be killed or destroyed. Now when I use destroy, I use it using our present day vernacular, not the vernacular of the scripture, of which I will explain later when it speaks of the destruction of the soul. But when we use the word destroy, we think of something that has been eliminated, something that has ceased to be. When the Bible speaks of it, it speaks of a continual decay or continual uh, burning or continual rot that takes place. Now, 
Jesus speaks of, of the two men, and he gives this as an example for us so that you and I would be able to relate it to ourselves. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously each day or every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. Now notice this, the beggar died. What did they do with his body? Now I'm not for sure that he had a decent burial, but but nevertheless they probably took him out someplace without very many friends or relatives present, and they took and dug a hole in the ground and placed his body in a shallow grave. But you see, the scripture says that something happened to him. The scripture tells us that the spirit goes back to God, but what happened to the soul? It was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now Abraham's bosom is a phrase that was used by the Jews and is still used by the Jews today. And it simply means a place of rest or a place of paradise. The rich man, he also died. What happened to his body? His body was taken out probably in the presence of many friends and relatives and potentates of his day. And it was placed in the ground just like Lazarus' body was placed in the ground. Notice what happened. The Bible says the rich man died. He was also buried. That's talking about the body. Now, what happened to his soul? The scripture says in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now this is a very, very important passage of Scripture for your consideration today. Because if you die without making peace with God, without having true Bible salvation, without having been born of water or of spirit, you have absolutely no hope at all of ever dwelling eternally in the presence of God. The scripture bears witness to this. Jesus said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Jesus also goes on to say, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, God's will is that you be saved. He does not want you to die a sinner's death in hell. But nevertheless, when the body is placed in the ground, when you have sealed your lips and you speak no more, and when your eyes are closed and your ears do not hear, the spirit of life goes back to God. But the soul, being the offspring, the offshoot, of God Himself, it lives forever and forever and forever. And being that it is that eternal part of man that came from God, it is like all other creatures who are directly related to God. The angels of heaven were created in the likeness 
and in the image of God. And man was created in the likeness and the image of God. The devil himself and all the angels that were taken out of heaven as a result of rebellion that became demon spirits in the world today, they cannot be eliminated. There is no such thing as the annihilation of the soul. As some people would like for you to think. Now the Jehovah's Witness go around, they knock on doors, and they tell you, well, don't worry about hell because there is no such place. Now it's true that they can logically reason that because they have a different Bible than the original. You see, the Jehovah's Witness, they have the New World Translation. Now their New World Translation was given to them by their first leader or the founder of the Jehovah's Witness faith, a man by the name of Russell. And this man, by the name of Russell took Barry's interlinear uh, commentary and he took, not knowing the Greek himself, and formed the New World's translation of the Bible. Now all of this is documented. You can go down to the Madison Public Library and check out the books. He did not even know the Greek alphabet and yet he calls his Bible a translation. It is not a New World Translation, friend. It's a New World Commentary. And it's Russell's Commentary. It's not the Bible. He did not believe in a hell. And he set out to prove, according to the Scripture, that there was no hell. But you see, the only way you can properly interpret Scripture, you must first find out what the Scripture teaches, and then you establish your doctrine according to what thus saith the Word of God. You don't first establish what thus saith John Grant, or thus saith Rich Thomas, or thus saith George O'Neill, and then make your Bible to fit it. Friend, that does not work. You first establish the teaching of the Bible, and then you conform to the teaching of the Bible. So they go around, they tell people, oh, don't worry, uh, there is no such thing as hell. Now, Jehovah's Witness, for the first time, if you're here and you're Jehovah's Witness, and you think that it's very unethical for me to call your particular faith behind the pulpit. I'm sorry that you feel this way, but, but you need to hear this. I say you need to hear this. And if you're taking classes and lessons from a Jehovah's Witness, the first thing you need to do is lock your door next Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock when they come or whenever they come and don't let them in. You may say, well, I just uh, think that I ought to have an open mind. Yeah, some people are so open-minded their brains fall out. <clears throat> really. You need to check into what you're getting involved in. You need to know what the Bible teaches. But they'll come and say, well, there is no such thing as hell. But you see, if every man in the Bible rose up and voted against God, you won't change what the Bible says if all men vote against it. Why? Because it is forever settled. Russell can't change it, and Rutherford couldn't change it, who was the second 
leader of the Jehovah's Witness group, and John Grant won't be able to change it, and no other minister will be able to change it. What has been written has been written, and what has been settled has been settled. God was so sure that the Word of God would, would stand that He made this statement, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall always be with you. It shall remain. The Bible says the grass groweth and the flower dieth, but the word of God is everlasting and it remains forever. And you will not be able to change it. Praise God. Let's lift our hands. In fact, that we're serving a God that is everlasting and His Word is everlasting to us. Praise God. <clears throat> Praise God. So, here we see a rich man dying and we also see a poor man dying. One man was a saved man. He had made his peace with God. And another one was not. They were both buried. One went to Abraham's bosom or a place of rest or paradise. The other one went to hell. Now when he lifted up his eyes, he was in torment. Now can you believe that a place of fire where the body is not there? See, if you were to go, if you could find the rich man's grave today, you might be able to dig it up and find remains there, bones and such. But even though this particular passage of Scripture was written some 2,000 years ago or almost 2,000 years ago, this man who was placed in hell is still there today. Now, he will not burn up his body is not there. You follow what I'm saying? But he is in torment. And just as the soul can inflict pain to the body, the soul also, absent from the body, has the ability and the power to reason it has the ability and the power to be emotional. It has the ability and the power to experience pain when it is absent from the body. Now there is a part of mankind that, that certainly baffles all scientists. People have researched the body and they've looked in the brain. They have not yet been able to determine what really makes life and what causes death. You could take your mind or your brain and you could take it all apart and you, they know the structure of the cells of the brain. They made a lot of research. But where does all of that come from? What gives a an individual personality. What makes him distinctively different? Why is he what he is? It's because he is the offshoot of God himself. But because that he will not accept his parent, God, and because that he will not serve him and trust him, 
And because that he does not seek after him, there comes a time in which God has to cut him off. And when he is cut off from God, he ceases to live. Now, the body dies, the spirit goes back to God, which is life, but he has this eternal element. That is cast in the lake of fire. Now, let me, let me just show you something about, about hell. Now, notice what happened. And he said, and he cried and said, verse 24 of Luke 16, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Does the soul have a tongue? Not a physical tongue. This is why the Bible says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That, that the tongue is the physical part. That is, the, the, the fleshly tongue is the part that forms the words and such. But, but he, what the scripture is teaching is that there is an inner man. It has ability to speak just like God can speak. For I am tormented in this flame. Can you believe that, that flames could torment something that you could not see with your eyes? Now notice this. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. Now what Father Abraham did, and this is figuratively speaking, Abraham was a type or shadow of, of God himself. So God speaks to this rich man and he said, Son, remember. Why was he called son? Because he was the offshoot, the offspring of God himself. And God is saying, Son, remember. The gray matter was in the grave. But the soul had the power to remember. And one of the most tormenting things about hell is the very fact that's established in the scripture that you will remember every opportunity you had to do good things and live for God and you turn them down. You'll remember every message that was preached to you, every hymn that was sung, every word of encouragement that was given to you to serve God. You remember every time somebody went down in the baptismal tank in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember every person that stepped out and walked down the aisle to the altar and gave their heart to God. And you will remember every opportunity that came to you that you rejected to serve your master. Now you remember all of this. And the tragedy of hell is the haunting remembrance of the opportunities that you had to serve God and yet you would not serve God. How long are you going to live? I don't know how long you're going to be here. The Bible speaks of three score and ten years, but a lot of people don't live to be 70 years old. Doesn't it seem strange that that after we have done all the things we can do to keep our bodies healthy, 
that the average lifespan today of a woman is 72 and of a man it's 68. And so the average lifespan of mankind is 70. Doesn't it seem strange that the Word of God some thousands of years ago spoke of this? Now in certain parts of the world it's not that way, but that's where a lot of bodily abuse and, and such comes, where people don't try to take care of themselves. So let's say that you live 70. How long is 70 when you compare it to everlasting life? Well, you see, there's just no, no way you can equate it. See? There's no way. Because eternity is forever and forever and forever and ever and ever and ever. There's just no way. Now let's go on in this, this story. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. You see, the, the tragedy of the rich man was he thought only of his life for the present. And he did not prepare for the future. It's a known fact that people who buy new automobiles in the north country here in the wintertime are more prone to leave off air conditioners than they are in the summer. Why? Because when the chilly winds are blowing out of the northwest at 20 miles an hour and the wind chill factor is 60 below and actual temperature is 22 below, it's hard to visualize that there's going to come a time in which you'd like to turn some more cold air on. And it's also true that while you're having a good time here and you're having fun, that the season will change and you will go into a new dimension, a different dimension. The body's going to be placed in the ground and the spirit of life goes back to God. But even though you're cut off from God Himself, that you will continue to be an eternal being entrapped in a lake of fire forever and forever and forever. Now this is what's going to happen if you don't serve God and give your life to God. Now you know yourself. As much as sometimes... You might want to believe there is no God and no eternity. You can read about people dying in the paper and has very little effect on you. But you let one of your close kindred die. One of your loved ones. And you go look in the casket. And there's a feeling that comes across you that, hey, they are somewhere. I'd like to talk with them. I'd like to communicate. I'd like to find out what they're doing right now. That there's such a mysterious air about the whole situation. Now notice what happened here. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you 
can not. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, notice this, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. In other words, take Lazarus. Let him go back. If I can't go back, if there's no way I can return back, if there's no way I can get out of this place of torment, now, you notice how unselfish he becomes all of a sudden. See, circumstances do have a way of changing your mind. And so he's changed his mind about things. His entire philosophy has changed. He has the ability to continue to reason things out. He has the ability to remember. He has the ability to experience pain and suffering. Now notice what he says. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. In other words, let Lazarus go back. Now notice what happened. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went from the dead... They will repent. Now what what the Lord says, well, why should Lazarus go back? They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. That's what he's speaking of. Why should Lazarus go back? In other words, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Why take him out of a place of rest? He, he's made it. He's got it made. Why take him back? Why let him go? Now notice what happened. He continues to reason. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, I, or pardon me, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they won't believe my word, neither Will they believe or be persuaded if one rose from the dead? Now you may say, oh, but if we had one that rose from the dead, we would believe. Friend, we do have one that rose from the dead. Jesus Christ himself. And when he went into the inner parts of the earth, the Bible says he preached to the spirits that were in prison. He went right down to the very door of of hell itself. And when he came out, the Bible says that he came out with a key to death, hell and the grave in his hand. But friend, after he arose from the dead, the world still did not believe. And 2,000 years later, they're still not believing, even though they all admit that Jesus Christ did indeed come from the dead. And so the logic that God used was this. There's no need of taking somebody out of the lake of fire. And there's no need of taking somebody out of Abraham's bosom. I came forth from the grave and they will not hear. Let's look at a scripture that speaks of bodily punishment in hell. 
Matthew 10, 28. Now we've already said that the body is placed in the ground and the soul then goes to hell. Now we're talking about people who are not saved. Okay? Verse 28 of Matthew 10. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him, singular, which is able to destroy both. Now notice this, both soul and body in hell. Now, you have already heard me make the statement that when you die, that your body's in the ground and you can go out and dig the body up. But this speaks of the destruction of the body along with the soul in hell. How can this be? I'd like for you to take your Bibles then and turn with me to Revelation 22. Praise God. All right. Revelation 22. Pardon me. I think it's Revelation 20. Okay. I'm looking at the wrong passage of Scripture. We'll be reading Revelation 22. Okay. Revelation 20. Verse 11 through 15. Okay. <clears throat> and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, which were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Now that's simply saying that that there will be a time that this rich man, along with all the other people who went to hell, will be delivered up out of hell. They'll be delivered up to God to be judged. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, what the Scripture teaches, and we do not have enough time to go into all of the Scriptures relative to this subject, but if you die lost without God, your body is placed in the ground, it's buried, and your soul goes to hell. 
But there will be a time in which God will call all of the deceased bodies from their graves. What happens is that there will be a resurrection of the dead, even those who are not resurrected for the purpose of eternal life. Now, we constantly talk about the resurrection of the dead when all the saints are going to get up out of the ground. Just as the soul of man will leave a place of rest or a place of paradise and inhabit the body, and at the sounding of the trumpet be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, after that, there will also be a resurrection. This is what Peter was speaking of in Acts, the second chapter, when he was preaching to the people there. When he speaks of the restitution of all things, he's talking about the time in which God will bring back every soul to stand before him. Revelation 1 and 7 tells us that every eye shall behold him, even those that pierced him. That's speaking of Jesus. The Bible also tells us three places in the New Testament that to him, speaking of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And let me tell you, friend, when you spend a few years in hell, when you come before God, you're going to fall down and you're going to beg for mercy. But you see, at that time, he is not the Savior of the world. He is the judge of the world. And he cannot, by virtue of his plan of salvation, save a man simply through his begging and pleading then. If you want to be saved, you should beg for mercy today. But because of pride and a lot of other things that grip the soul of man, man doesn't like to humble himself before his God today. Submit yourself therefore unto God. Resist the devil, he will flee from thee. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto thee. But the hardest thing for man to do is to submit himself to his God. Why? Because he likes to think that he is Mr. So-and-so. He likes to think that he is somebody. He likes to think that he is independent. Friend, all God would have to do to scare the daylights out of you is to just whisper in your ear, boo, real loud. He's that kind of a God. But because it's your self-will and because you do not want to submit and because you want to have your way, and God has allowed you to make a choice, if you want to die lost, God says that's your business. I have provided a plan in which you don't have to. But if you want to go after the devil and you want to go after sin and you want to do all that, the 70 years or the or how many years you live upon the face of the earth, you go ahead and do it. However, you cannot have everlasting life if you don't make the right choice. So out of hell will ascend the soul, inhabit the body again, and you will bodily... Stand before God one day. Now, you know what he's going to do? The Bible says the books were open. Books. Books. Let's say that. Books. Not one. One of them is the book of life. But one of them contains all the deeds that you ever did. 
You know, the Bible says all things are open before God. He sees where you were last night. And He knew what you were doing. He'll see you tonight. And He knows what you'll be doing. He knows that every last person here could come to church tonight if they wanted to. But some of you won't. And He knows what you're going to be doing. And He knows why you're not going to come. He knows why you didn't come last weekend. And He knows what you were doing. He knows when fishing is more important than praying. Sure He does. He knows all these things. And if you think you're fooling Him, you're not. And He's going to look through here. And He's going to say, John Grant, you remember this particular night? You know what they were doing at church and you know where you were? You know when I talked to you about this? You know when you almost had that car wreck? I just shook you up real good. And you prayed for a few days. Why did you stop praying? Why did you forget? You remember that time that you felt guilty for a long time because of your sin? Let me ask you, John. Do you know the story of the old rugged cross? You believe in it? You believe that my blood really takes away guilt and sin? You believe it takes away stain? Yeah. Well, why didn't you fall at my feet for mercy? Now, folks, this is not a fairy tale. We're confronting you with something that Jesus Christ thought was very, very important. So after he reads all of your story, then the book of life is open. And he goes down the line. I don't know how, I don't really know what it's all about or how the details are going to be. And he looks for Grant. G-R. And then the book is closed. He said, Son, I didn't find your name in the book of life. Why didn't you want life? I just, I guess I wanted it, but, but you didn't want it bad enough to suffer persecution for a while. Now you made your choice. You made your decision. Now, because there has been a unity of both the body and the soul. The body and the soul then is cast into the lake of fire. This, notice what the scripture says, is the second death. In other words, there was one death that came to the body. It was placed in the ground. But God brings all of that dirt back together. You would say, can God really do that? Where do you think Adam came from? Where do you think you came from? You better believe that he can. One man who was a pilot wanted his body cremated and his ashes scattered throughout the North American continent. But let me tell you something. If God sees every sparrow that falls to the ground, if he gives life to every ant and every mosquito, friend, he knows where his ashes fell. And one man who was a captain of a ship 
wanted his ashes thrown and sprinkled throughout the ocean. But if God knows where every little fish is and every little piece of algae that grows in the ocean, friend, he knows where those ashes are. And if you think that you're going to fool God by inventing some particular method in which God will not be able to find your body, oh, no, friend. Everything that we see came from God's mind. And He knows it all. And He's going to bring the body back. Now the second death. The Bible speaks of the second death. Notice this. Revelation 21 verse 8. The Bible says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. The Bible tells us in Revelation 20, verse 11, The devil that deceiveth them which were cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. You see, this is the reason why that Jesus made this statement. He said, What would a man give in exchange for a soul? Question mark. Would you be so foolish as to sell your soul for a little earthly pleasure? What he's saying is, what kind of a price tag can you possibly place on eternal life? What is wrong with people that they would listen to a deceiving devil and not make peace with God? Jesus went on to say in Mark the ninth chapter verse 47, he said, If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out! For it is better that man go to heaven with one eye than to go into hell with two. And if thine hand offend thee, cut it off. Now he was not saying, oh, you better cut off your hand if you can't keep your hands to yourself. He has a method, and that is repentance. See? But what he was doing, he was using logic to say, wouldn't it be a lot better for a man to go to heaven with one hand than to hell with two? And God has so designed the lake of fire. After judgment comes. Where that he will be burned forever. And forever. And forever. Now notice. He speaks of the second death. In Revelation 21 verse 8. If you will turn with me for my final scripture today. In John the 8th chapter.
Jesus is speaking, and notice what he says. I said therefore unto you, you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not, let's just stop there, believe not. Who's going to the lake of fire? The fearful, the murderers, the idolaters, the whoremongers, the liars. But he says, the fearful and the unbelieving. You may not do anything wrong while you're here except that you just don't believe in Jesus. You may never kill anybody. You may never cheat on your spouse. You may never tell a lie. But notice what he says, the fearful and the unbelieving. He said, except you believe not that I am he. If you believe not, rather, that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And the death that he's speaking here is the death of the lake of fire. When you die now, your body's placed in the ground. And if you have not made peace with God, you go to hell. But there is a time in which the body will be resurrected and the soul will come out of hell into that body and you will stand before God to be judged. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then both body and soul is cast into the lake of fire forever and forever and forever. Now folks, because of the brainwashing techniques of the devil, this kind of preaching is not popular. Somebody, somebody made this statement. said, oh, over at Calvary Gospel Church, he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But I'll tell you one thing, friend. If you die lost, you'll wish that some hellfire and brimstone preacher would go to your folks' house and talk to them. And you're going to remember every hellfire and brimstone message you ever heard. Oh, we're talking about something that's real. We're talking about something that's valid. We're talking about something that's important. But the beauty of all of it is this. That there was an old rugged cross upon which Jesus Christ was nailed. And from his side came forth blood and water that took away the sin of the world. And if you would come right now and give your heart to God, be buried in His precious name and filled with His Spirit, your sins will be taken out, blotted away, and your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Would you stand with me right now? On both sides of the pulpit here, there is a place for you to kneel and pray. We're going to sing the old rugged cross again. And as we sing it, would you please step out if you've not made peace with God? And would you come and give your heart to the Lord? On a hill far away stood an old
rugged cross, the emblem of suffering.